From iCare Partners, this is the Doc to Doc podcast. Clinical discussions with our team of world-class eye care professionals across the country. Through connectedness and continuing education, we help patients see their absolute best for life. Your host is Dr. Lori Preventure, a glaucoma specialist and cataract surgeon at the Cincinnati Eye Institute. Welcome back to the Doc to Doc podcast. Today, I am very excited to have a fun little episode with Mike MacGyver Snyder. He is a cornea, cataract, and complex anterior segment surgeon at the Cincinnati Eye Institute. He's world-renowned. He really doesn't need much introduction. Mike, welcome. Thanks so much for having me here. So like I said, this is going to be a little different than what we typically do on the Doc to Doc podcast, but I think it's going to be very high yield and hopefully fun. What I'd like to do is pick your brain about maybe your top five ophthalmology hacks. Anytime there's an email that goes out where there's a shortage or something is going on where we can't get access to something, it seems like you always have a simple solution or a shortcut. And I looked up the definition of MacGyver and it's to do something to make or repair or improvise or do something in an inventive way to come up with a solution. So I thought that's the perfect nickname for you. So let's jump right in. You mentioned a few things. You mentioned tripan blue. So tell us, what do we do when there's no tripan blue? Yeah, so this is a real challenge. Um, tripan blue was a game changer for white cataracts. And before that, everybody used to dread the white cataract. And it was a, a huge stressor for surgeons. And we're all very unhappy when they would come up. And uh, then tripan blue came along, and it converts it into a much more normal case. Well, then if you've got no supply, what do you, what do, you do? What are the choices? And, and certainly we can go back to the old techniques of trying to use an illumination from a, a light pipe from the vitreoretinal people from the side to try and give us a little shadow. That was really not overly effective, but there's a number of alternatives to tripen blue. And one of the, the alternatives is actually using ICG, the endocyanin green dye that the uh, retina folks use sometimes to look for deep choroidal neovascular membranes. As it turns out, ICG was actually introduced for capsule staining before Tripen Blue. It just never made it to market as a commercial product for that purpose. So what we used to do and what we can do now when Tripen Blue is in shortage is we take the ICG precipitate. It comes in a, a bottle and it's just a dried out precipitate. And we mix it with the diluent that it comes with. Now, the, the special little vial that it comes with is called the diluent. It turns out it's sterile water. So we're just basically hydrating it with sterile water. And so we can't just put sterile water in. Otherwise, if we put it into the anterior chamber, we've got an osmotic challenge for the endothelial cells. So what we do straightforward, we take a half cc of the diluent, the sterile water, and we just mix that up. And then we add four and a half cc's of balanced salt solution, just BSS. And that gives us an isotonic solution, which we can paint across the anterior capsule just like we might with tripen blue. We typically like to paint it across rather than putting it in with an air bubble because there is a little bit of endothelial cell toxicity with ICG that tripen blue does not have. So if we paint it across the capsule with OVD in the anterior chamber, we've got no issues. Now, there's a couple catches. ICG is green and not blue. That's no big deal. We're perfectly happy to see things green, not blue. But it does stain a little slower. So with tripen blue, we might leave the dye in there for just a couple of seconds, wash it out, and everything's perfect. Uh, with the ICG, I tend to like to leave it on for about 20 or 30 seconds 
to make sure that there's a nice contact time of the die with the capsule to get a good view. And then we proceed along just as we would were it tripe and blue. We just uh, aspirate the excess dye, replace it with additional OVD, and continue along with our, our regular procedure. Now one interesting tidbit is that when we use ICG, not only does it stain the capsule green, but it also fluoresces red. So if you see something red, don't get freaked out by that. It's just one of the unusual properties of ICG. Now there are other versions of Tripen Blue that are out there as well. There's one called Brilliant Blue, which is really the same product. It's just in a different concentration for retinal work, and that can be used equally well, though typically it's the same manufacturer, so when one is short, the other tends to be short. Um, there are other dyes that have been used for capsules, but they're not really ideal. Fluorescein has been used, but it usually mucks up the view far too much and does not stain the capsule well. And people have recommended gentian violet in the distant past, but its intraocular toxicities are rather high. So, best choices when uh, Vision Blue is not available, with other versions of Tripen Blue, and ICG mixed up half cc of diluent, four and a half cc's BSS. Great. One question to follow up on that. Does the ICG affect the rigidity or the, the way the capsule behaves like Tripan Blue does? No, great point. So Tripan Blue has this unique property that you allude to that it actually makes the capsule less elastic. And that can be um, a useful tool in kids, for example, because if you leave the Tripan Blue on for 30, 40 seconds, it's much less elastic and it behaves more like an adult capsule. So that's just a, an extra bonus for that. Um, in aneritic capsules, by way of example, the Tripen Blue actually is a deficit because those capsules are very fragile and very thin to start with and not much, very elastic. So for patients that are congenital aneritics, I still use ICG preferentially over Tripen Blue. Thanks for bringing that up. Very interesting. That's, that's a great clinical correlation to help us remember that. All right, let's move on to pearl number two. And this is for disodium EDTA, which we use for band calculation. It can be a little difficult to obtain sometimes. Why is that, and what's a good alternative? Well, there's no really great commercial source for the disodium EDTA that, that we like to use and the concentration that we like to use in ophthalmology. And so you have to rely upon compounding pharmacies. Sometimes they don't have the raw materials available, and it's typically rather expensive. The last time I think we ordered it, it was 150, 200 bucks for a small vial for one case, which is really uh, uh, not all that efficient from a cost perspective. And disodium EDTA, well, quite frankly, it always, well, failed to impress, in my opinion. We would put the drops on, we would rub it back and forth with a Wexel sponge, we would tell a couple of jokes, we would try and engage in conversation, 20 minutes later, we'd put some more on, we'd you know, try and pick away at the calcium. And it was really not an overly effective um, technique from a time perspective. It would take 30, 40 minutes to do even a modest band chelation. And a lot of times it's just because we were hacking away at calcified uh, collagen rather than uh, uh, really dissolving it. Now, potassium EDTA, amazingly, is infinitely better, much less toxic, and it has the wonderful advantage of also being, get this, this is in real world medical terms, cheap as dirt. So the uh, potassium EDTA, it turns out, is that little white powdery stuff in the bottom of the lavender top blood tubes. 
So when they draw a CBC and we use a lavender top tube, that little stuff that keeps it from clotting, calcium EDTA, or excuse me, so uh, potassium EDTA. And it's really easy to mix. You just take a half cc of sterile water, you pour it into one of the purple top tubes, you slosh it around till it dissolves, you pour that into the next tube, and you keep doing this for seven tubes. And once you've got seven tubes of uh, the precipitate dissolved in this little half cc, that's enough to fill one or two uh, wax cell sponges with it. And quite frankly, with the potassium EDTA, that's all you need. You rub it across the surface of the cornea, and like magic, it just fades away. The, you, you can just see the calcium disappearing while you watch on unedited video. It's quite amazing, and it works fantastic. And from a cost perspective, those tubes cost about 18 cents a piece. So the total cost is about a buck and a quarter. What a great deal. Amazing. Cheaper than dirt, I'd say, depending on where you get your potting soil. <laughs> Completely true. I have to well, credit Dean Wano for uh, popularizing this technique. And he actually published his, his recipe in uh, Journal of Cataract and Refractor Surgery. But great technique. You know, seven of the uh, purple top tubes, half cc of sterile water. Wonderful. Your story reminds me of being a fellow sitting around while we're waiting for mitomycin to soak on the conch. And those those awkward moments where two minutes feels like much, much longer than two minutes. I can't imagine doing a you know, 20, 30 minute chelation. That's why I chose glaucoma and not cornea. Anyways, we'll go on to number three. So post-COVID era, or just recently really, we're not really post-COVID, but you know, post-acute COVID era, it just seems like there are back orders galore, um, and one of which has recently been triessence has been unavailable. Tell me your workaround for that. So again, it's kind of looking into the uh, rearview mirror to look for the uh, solutions. The first description of using the staining of the vitreous with uh, triencinolone crystals was actually by Scott Burke at CEI, and it's now, gosh, 20 years ago when he first described this. And he described it as throwing a, a towel over a ghost. And that's completely how it is. And uh, the technique that was being used at that time is what I now revert to when triessence is no longer available. We can use Kenalog crystals. It's obviously off-label. And the, the catch, though, is that Kenalog is available in a multi-dose format. And so there's preservatives in the supernatant liquid. But the crystals are not dissolved in the liquid. They're just suspended. It's a suspension, not a solution. So basically, the way that we do that is we just wash off those crystals. The way to do that is very straightforward. We take a 1cc syringe, and we draw up into the syringe just through a needle, right out of the bottle, 1cc of the 40 milligram per ml of Kenalog. And then we take off the needle, and we put on a filter and we inject all of the fluid through the filter. Now the filter catches the triamcinolone crystals, but it doesn't catch the supernatant liquid. So once we've ejected all the fluid through, all we have left in that filter is the crystals. We resuspend those crystals in BSS, and we repeat that process three times. And once we've repeated that process three times, it's just crystals within BSS. Once I've done that, I like to dilute 10 to 1, because I like a little bit more dilute solution than that. 
and then we just inject it into the anterior chamber as we would with the triessence were it commercially available. And uh, the nice thing about it is it's actually the crystals are rather small. They're smaller than what you typically are used to. And so you get a more even um, coverage, and it looks awfully nice. Now, there are some compounding pharmacies that will also make Triumcin alone uh, for you in a similar fashion, and then they just ship it to you that way. But usually the compounding pharmacies may require that you have a specific prescription per patient. And if you need it on the fly and you didn't anticipate it, well, you're kind of out of luck with that. Right, and most of us who don't do complex anterior segment surgery like you, when we see vitreous, it is unanticipated. All right, well, let's... Now, I, I'd like to throw in, can sure, I throw in one little absolutely. quick caveat before we close that topic? Sometimes when we see unanticipated vitreous, it might be in the setting, for example, of a cataract surgery where the capsule uh, uh, breaks and little gel comes forward. One of the challenges in that setting is that we usually will fill the anterior chamber with OVD to prevent further gel from coming forward before we do anything else. I just want to remind all of our listeners that we want to wait until the end of the case once we've cleaned everything up and we think all of the vitreous gel is gone before we use the uh, uh, triamcinolone crystals to, to stain the vitreous because if we inject that solution that we've just prepared into OVD in the anterior chamber, it'll be a snowstorm, and we won't see anything but a whiteout. Great, Pearl. All right, let's talk about some of our common post-op cataract meds. Again, oftentimes we'll run into issues with expense or availability with some of the NSAIDs or the uh, antibiotics we like to use. Let's start with what's your favorite NSAID, and what's a good substitution for it? And then maybe what's your favorite post-cataract surgery antibiotic and what's a good substitution for it? Sure. So my favorite NSAID is Bromfenac. The thing that I like a lot about Bromfenac is that it's much more friendly on the corneal epithelium than any of the other NSAIDs, and its dosing can be daily. And so not only do you have a greater degree of efficacy but you also have a lesser dose. And for my patients, many of my patients have ocular surface disease. And dry eye patients that are using a four-time-a-day non-steroidal like Catorolac, that can be really harsh on the epithelium and can cause a lot of postoperative challenges, sometimes even corneal melts. So my preference is to use Bromfenac. There are a number of different preparations. Uh, that are commercially available, both generic and uh, on-brand uh, preparations. Sometimes all of those are unavailable. My next favorite would be Nepafenac. And there is one version of Nepafenac that's actually made as a once-daily. It's got uh, a kind of thick preservative in it that's also epithelial-friendly. The other versions of Nepafenac are, are three times daily. And uh, so it, it's really a reduction of ocular surface issues from my perspective and a dosing issue. And then if uh, all of those are unavailable, which actually I think at the moment that's been kind of coming in and out with a, a number of them, then uh, Ketorolac is another alternative, but you have to be super careful on the ocular surface, making sure that everybody's being very attentive to adding preservative-free teardrops in the intervals between their dosing. Very important. Now for antibiotics, um, we all have our different preferences, and again, one of my preferences is to reduce the need for frequency of dosing, 
moxifloxacin and bessifloxacin um, have uh, respectively three time a day and two time a day safe dosing, which I think is kind of nice. Um, as we go into other uh, agents, their uh, breadth of action is not quite as good, and typically their frequency needs to be uh, four times a day rather than three. So sometimes the patient will go to the pharmacy and say, oh, the moxifloxacin generic isn't available, the brand name is $5,000 a bottle or whatever the number may be, and patients, I'm not going to pay that. And they say, well, we can get you ofloxacin. Okay, ofloxacin's not bad, and it has a nice uh, um, coverage, not quite as good as the uh, third and fourth generations, but not bad. Uh, but it is a four-time-a-day dosing. And if you use an antibiotic that's designed for four-time-a-day dosing and you use it three times a day, well, the best way to create resistance organisms in your bioflora uh, is to use chronic subtherapeutic dosing. So it's probably better to use no antibiotic than to use an antibiotic at subtherapeutic dosing. Those are excellent points. And I think you're... Your comment on dosing frequency is really valid. It, we're asking a lot of patients after cataract surgery, especially if their eyes are close together and in surgery dates, it's a lot for them to keep track of. So having less drops is really important. And yeah, the last thing we want to do is create resistant organisms on a, on a freshly operated surface. All right. Lastly, and this is really interesting, and I've saved it for last because I want all of our listeners to stick around here for the end. Let's talk about pinhole IOLs. Tell me about the recently approved AccuFocused IC8 pinhole IOL. What is it? Who's a good candidate? And if you have experience so far, what, what has it been? How have, you, how have you done with those patients? Well, so the IC8 was approved uh, quite a number of months ago. It's actually just hit the market. My understanding is the first um, US case was done last week. Oh. And I didn't do it, so my experience with it is so far zero. I'm waiting to uh, uh, be able to get access. Um, I have had some experience in compassionate use device exemption cases uh, with the pinhole device from Orchard, which is uh, uh, no longer readily available, uh, either by compassionate use or uh, in Europe, it's no longer on the market. And uh, that device performed really well. The thing that's nice about pinhole optics is that uh, while they were originally developed primarily for folks who wanted to have greater depth of focus, and that's you know, certainly a worthy goal, uh, the real winner for that technology is people with irregular corneas. And if you have an irregular cornea, somebody who's got an irregular scar from a penetrating injury, somebody who's got keratoconus but clear stroma with an irregular astigmatism, these patients can do remarkably well with a pinhole implant and that can sometimes save them the need for a full thickness penetrating claritoplasty. And to me, that, that's a pretty big deal. Now, pinhole implants do have a little greater chance of pro problems with halos because of the diffractive effect of the pinhole. And some people do notice a little bit of dimness of their vision. So it's not always the perfect solution for uh, somebody who needs to be binocularly implanted but it really depends on what their, their other options are and what the fact patterns of their eyes are. So if you've got somebody who otherwise is going to need a full thickness transplant, they maybe can't tolerate a scleral lens and they're not functional because of their cornea, you might be able to either kick that can down the road 
or avoid the need for a full thickness transplant by using a pinhole implant. So for me, that's the part that's the most exciting as a cornea specialist. And of course, there's some folks who will uh, choose to use that uniocularly for presbyopia correction to give uh, patients a greater depth of focus, and, and that's perfectly legitimate as well. The implant itself has a very small central aperture, and then there's an intermediate mask through which it blocks the light, creating the pinhole, yet the outer portion of the implant is clear again. So visualization of the peripheral fundus is really rather easy based on the experience of our friends uh, in Australia and what they've told us. Fantastic. I think it's exciting to have yet another option available. Um, it seems like we're getting more and more in our tool belt that we can offer to more patients so we don't have to be quite as selective and not as many people are ruled out from these types of options. So that's exciting. Well, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your ophthalmology hacks with us. It's been great learning from you, and I think it's all your pearls are wonderful, and I know most of us can use, if not one of them, all of them. So thank you again for spending some time with us. Thanks for inviting me. It was a lot of fun. The opinions expressed by the physicians in this podcast are solely the personal opinions of the providers and do not represent iCare Partners policy.